Welcome to the pilot episode of a brand new JPO podcast. Over the next 15 minutes, we'll bring you a synopsis of key articles from the journal's November-December issue, as well as interviews with authors and a guest commentary. We'll start with an article from the infection section of the journal out of San Diego about aspirating femoral necks to rule out osteo while draining septic hips. And we'll discuss the work with senior author Dr. Salil Upasani. The authors asked the question, should we aspirate the femoral neck during hip IND procedures to help identify the organism? That is, will it change the treatment plan, or will it simply create a small hole in the femoral neck without any added benefit? They reviewed 83 patients who underwent hip IND. 31 of these underwent concomitant femoral neck aspiration just distal to the physis using an 18-gauge needle. If pus was aspirated, a 2cm by 2cm window was created, and the femoral neck was debrided. The authors found that aspiration was better than MRI for detecting femoral neck osteo with 100% sensitivity and 100% specificity. 65% of patients had a pre-op MRI, but 60% of patients with a negative MRI who also had aspiration were found to have femoral neck osteo based on the aspiration. Thus, Sensitivity for femoral neck osteo based on MRI was only 38%. Specificity was 95%. No patients had adverse events such as iatrogenically causing osteo by seeding the femur with bacteria or pathologic fracture. However, three patients with negative MRIs who did not undergo aspiration had devastating complications related to osteo of the proximal femur which they subsequently developed, including pathologic fracture, disseminated osteo, and AVN. Of note, femoral neck aspiration did not help identify organisms. In all cases, with a positive femoral neck culture, the diagnosis was also made from blood or hip cultures. To consider the implications of this work, we welcome senior author, Dr. Sulil Upasani. Dr. Upasani, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Based on these results, what protocol do you recommend for listeners? We recommend obtaining blood cultures, inflammatory labs, and x-rays in the emergency department. We prefer to hold antibiotics, but I know literature suggests that it won't change the culture results. If there's concern for hip infection, we obtain an MRI. And if there's a hip effusion or osteo, we go straight to the operating room. We try to do it under the same anesthetic to aspirate the hip. If there's purulence, we perform an incision and debridement and a femoral neck metaphyseal aspiration with an 18-gauge needle. If the hip aspiration is equivocal, we wait for a stat cell count and proceed only if the cell count's over 50,000 or if there's a high percentage of neutrophils. If pus is aspirated from the femoral neck, we recommend making a window in the bone and debriding the femoral neck. How long do you continue antibiotics for a septic hip, and how does that change if there's femoral neck osteo? We usually do two weeks of antibiotics for a septic hip, status post and incision and debridement, and then we extend for another two weeks if there's concern for osteomyelitis. Thank you, Dr. Upasani. Oh, you're welcome. Next, we'll move to the journal's spine section and welcome co-author Cheryl Lawing, an attending surgeon at the Tampa Shriners Hospital, to review her article entitled, Walking Out of the Curve. Thoracolumbar kyphosis in achondroplasia. The research was performed at Johns Hopkins under the leadership of senior author Michael Ain. Cheryl, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. 
So in this study, we retrospectively reviewed 60 patients with achondroplasia that had at least 20 degrees of thoracolumbar kyphosis. What we found is that the deformity had corrected in 15% of patients by the time they began walking and an additional 48% corrected over the next year. At final follow-up, we had 30% who had residual thoracolumbar kyphosis. We identified three risk factors for thoracolumbar kyphosis that doesn't resolve. This including wedging of the apical vertebra, posterior translation of the apical vertebra, and developmental motor delay. We found that residual kyphosis was not associated with four other risk factors that previously have been thought to be associated. These include hydrocephalus, foramen magnum decompression, presence of a BP shunt, or gender. Developmental delay, importantly, was defined as inability to independently sit by 14 months or stand by 30 months and caused an increased risk by fourfold. Would you mind explaining the institution's current treatment protocol? Yeah. So currently at Johns Hopkins, we recommend behavioral modifications for all of these patients, such as sitting with straight back seats and avoiding attempts to sit before the patient is ready. Patients with neurodeficits or curves over 40 degrees typically undergo a decompression and fusion. Curves between 20 and 40 degrees are typically followed closely. The senior author, Dr. Michael Ain, has found in his experience that bracing typically isn't very helpful and doesn't routinely use it. Lastly, what future research do you think should come out of this work? Well, I think an important finding is that patients with developmental motor delay are at a fourfold higher risk. So this could potentially be a population of patients who might benefit from bracing. And certainly, I think that would be a good area for future research. Thank you, Dr. Loring. Thank you. Next, we turn to the neuromuscular section of the journal. Strauss et al. performed a study at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia entitled Preliminary Safety and Tolerability of a Novel Subcutaneous Intrathecal Catheter System for Repeated Outpatient Dosing of Nusinersen to Children and Adults with Spinal Muscular Atrophy. Nusinersen is a medication for SMA that has shown remarkable results. However, it's administered by lumbar intrathecal injection, which is painful, inconvenient, associated with complications, and, after spinal fusion, may be impossible. To get around this problem, the authors implanted intrathecal catheters connected to a subcutaneous port that could be injected in clinic. The catheters were threaded from the lumbar spine up to the mid-thoracic spine. In patients with spinal fusions, the catheters were inserted through a drill hole in the fusion mass. The study includes six patients with spinal fusions and four whose families chose catheter implantation for convenience. The only adverse event related to the implant was inability to aspirate CSF from the port in one patient, but in that case, medication could still be injected. Thus, the authors concluded that nusinersen can be safely administered via a port connected to an intrathecal catheter. Next, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Bert Yaze, an attending surgeon at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, who performs similar procedures to provide a guest commentary on this study. Dr. Yaze, thank you for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me, Carter. So my first question is, when did you start with these procedures? We started about a year and a half ago. It was about a six to nine month process after it got its FDA release. And how many of these have you performed to date? We've actually done now 13 intrathecal catheters for Spinraza. And what, if anything, can you tell us about your outcomes and or patient satisfaction? 
Now, actually, the outcomes have been good. Obviously, this is a pretty novel thing. And so there was a little bit of a learning process associated with it, specifically what could patients do afterwards? What was the time interval between insertion and when they could receive the drug? Up until this point, uh, we've actually successfully delivered Benaraza through each of the patients that have had their catheters. We have had one in the interim where a catheter did actually break and required a revision of the catheter, but that uh, has subsequently been infused multiple times with no problems. And on the clinical side, we've seen the effectiveness of the Spinraza with all of our patients showing some sort of neurologic improvement or stabilization. And compared to this article we've reviewed, how, if at all, does your technique differ? Well, looking at the catheter that they designed, ours is a little bit different. Uh, they've relied more on a catheter that was designed for delivery of baclofen. We have used a different catheter. It's a little bigger caliber or diameter, which requires less pressure with its insertion. We've only actually done it on patients that have been previously fused. So all of our patients have had it done through an open procedure, pretty small, but a real open procedure. And then the catheter tip typically ends somewhere around the uh, lower thoracic region. So I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to hear if you have any concerns about the study, uh, specifically about any limitations. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the single case described by the authors with an inability to aspirate CSF before injection. Yeah, that's a great question, Carter. I'd be concerned that if you couldn't aspirate CSF, but you could inject the medicine, that maybe if there was a break in the catheter, that's what prevented the CSF from flowing back. But as you inject, you actually inject the drug um, into the soft tissue or wherever the break may be. So we have had one case now where we were unable to aspirate the CSF. We actually did not inject the medication at that time, and we actually had the patient go up to radiology, and under fluoroscopic guidance, we injected some contrast through the catheter. We actually did see the, the contrast flow into uh, the spine and into the intrathecal space, and with that confirmatory response, we then actually went ahead and injected the medication. And whatever the technique that prevented it from being aspirated wasn't clear, that patient has subsequently gone on to have repeat aspirations injections that were otherwise uneventful. That's interesting. And that makes sense as an approach to that situation. What other complications have come up or are you particularly on the lookout for with this new procedure? Yeah, so our use of an intrathecal catheter is not new. It's been done for a long time with baclofen pumps. I've placed now hundreds of them. One of the more common consequences that we can see is a CSF leak with the development of headaches, potentially even seeing a little bit of fluctuant response underneath their incision. Our goal when we start to have any of these problems suggestive of a CSF leak is to get patients flat to allow their uh, CSF close. Uh, what we were really trying to prevent, though, is this CSF leak becoming cutaneous, uh, which then obviously increases the risk of both a wound infection and a much more critical issue, meningitis. We get those patients flat to minimize their CSF pressures. And then once that resolves, we get them back up and moving about. What do you see for the future in this area or any upcoming possible changes to this procedure? I think from the catheter side, 
the most important thing is for patients who've been previously fused, it gives them hope that they would be able to receive this drug. The other possibility is we can start using these even in patients uh, similar to what the article presented, but which I have not done, in patients who have not been fused. I want to see more data before I start putting these in patients that haven't been fused where they have alternatives. But I think my patients who are now a year and a half, they've benefited from really having minimal interventions besides just a small injection into their ports. As for the Spinraza side, I think it's just really exciting for patients with SMA. This is one of probably many drugs in the pipeline that are going to help improve neurologic function potentially and ultimately their quality of life. Dr. Yasley, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Carter. Next, we are moving to the lower limb section of the journal, and we'll welcome lead author Dr. Jeffrey Stambo, assistant professor at University of Arkansas, to discuss a study entitled Knee Pain and Activity Outcomes After Femoral Derotation Osteotomy for Excessive Femoral Antiversion. The work was primarily performed at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dr. Clement. This study was a prospective study that we examined 28 patients over a year and a half period who underwent derotational femoral osteotomy over a troke entry nail to address a combination of anterior knee pain, tripping, difficulty with sports, or a combination thereof. On average, the patients achieved a clinical derotation measured by the troke prominence angle of 29 degrees. We used validated outcome scores to measure pre-op and minimum one-year outcomes, and we found that patients demonstrated clinically and statistically significant improvements in both domains. Thank you, Dr. Sambo. Are you able to say what type of patient is most likely to benefit from this procedure? In our cohort, we looked specifically at patients with isolated excessive femoral antiversion and excluded those with neuromuscular causes or uh, malicious malalignment. We found that those with a preoperative IKDC9 score below 70 which typically translates to difficulty with prolonged sports, running, and things like that. Those were the ones who were able to achieve a minimally clinically significant improvement of at least 13 points. Lastly, what should the goal version be? Intraoperatively, we aimed to recreate a situation where we got 40 degrees of internal hip rotation and about 60 degrees of external rotation, measuring it with the patient in a prone position with the knees flexed to about 90 degrees. I would like to say, however, that on sub-analysis of our study, we were not able to determine if there was an amount of correction that could directly predict the degree of improvement in relation to the reported function and pain scales. Thank you, Dr. Sambo. I appreciate your time. Thank you. We now turn to the trauma section of the journal to review a study named Non-Operative Treatment of Type 2A Supracondylar Humerus Fractures, Comparing Two Modalities. It was performed at British Columbia Children's Hospital by Roberts et al. And as a refresher, type 2A fractures are extended with an intact posterior hinge of cortex and no rotation or translation. All fractures were reduced in the ED with sedation. 16 were treated with a long arm cast and 23 were treated with taping in a flexed pronated position with cuff and collar sling. There were no differences in final alignment between the groups and no major complications, including no compartment syndrome, and no conversions to operative management. This study suggests that either flexion taping or casting is effective for type 2A fractures. But, as the authors point out, it's a retrospective study with notable weaknesses. The largest concern with non-operative treatment is compartment syndrome, and the sample size was far too small to study this risk, which has been reported between 0.1 and 0.3%. 
Of note, though, the authors hypothesize that future research will show lower risk of compartment syndrome with flexion taping than circumferential casting, at least among type 2A fractures. Next, we'll move to the hip section of the journal, and we have the pleasure of welcoming one of the featured co-authors to present her work. Dr. Julia Sanders is an assistant professor at Children's Hospital of Colorado in Aurora and co-author, along with Novais et al., of an article entitled, Graph Type 4 Hips Have Higher Risk of Residual Acetabular Dysplasia at One Year of Age Following Successful Pavlic Harness Treatment for Developmental Hip Dysplasia. Thanks for having me, Dr. Clement. We conducted this study because some infants treated with a pavlic harness achieve normal ultrasound measurements, but still demonstrate residual dysplasia at older ages. We aim to determine how often this happens and what risk factors can predict it. It's an important question because these patients would benefit from closer monitoring and perhaps an extended course of bracing. We retrospectively looked at 84 patients with 134 dysplastic hips. All hips achieved normal ultrasound measurements after approximately 12 weeks of pavlic treatment. However, at one year of age, about 12% demonstrated residual dysplasia, which we defined as an acetabular index greater than 28 degrees. The only predictor was graft type 4, which is a dislocated hip with interposed labrum, and this finding carried a relative risk of about 2.6. Dr. Sanders, thank you for the synopsis. Has this study changed your practice? Yes, definitely. We now obtain ultrasounds before starting pavlic treatment, even for patients with Ortolani-positive hips. In the past, we considered that unnecessary because the treatment would be pavlic harness regardless of the ultrasound findings. But we now know that it can predict residual dysplasia and guide family counseling. And one more follow-up question. What is your hospital's current protocol for infants successfully treated with a pavlic harness? Sure. So we currently obtain an AP x-ray at six months, one year, two years, five years, and 10 years, and then close to skeletal maturity, even after successful pavlic treatment. Importantly, if the acetabular index is greater than 28 at six months, we recommend nighttime abduction bracing until one year of age. Got it. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Lastly, we'll discuss an article entitled Consequences Following Distal Femoral Growth Plate Violation in an Ovine Model with an Intramedullary Implant a pilot study. This research was performed at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. The authors are interested in whether retrograde femoral nails could be viable in children, so they asked the research question, how large a hole can you make in the distal femoral physis before disturbing growth? Retrograde nails were placed in three-month-old sheep using a variety of implant sizes that ranged from 3% to 8% of the diameter of the physis. Euthanasia was performed 10 weeks after surgery. No bars were seen, and growth disturbance was only seen when implants occupied 8% of the physis, not with smaller implants. The authors found these results reassuring because retrograde nails typically occupy between 1 and 6% of the physis. A great deal of future research will be needed to prove that retrograde nails are safe through an open physis, but the authors suspect it is viable, especially in adolescents. They suggest that specific steps might make the procedure safer, such as reaming by hand at one millimeter increments, avoiding over-reaming, and locking the implant. An important assumption of the study is that growth arrest depends on the percent of the physis occupied, more so than the actual diameter of the implant. This notion deserves future research. Of note, retrograde nails would likely be most beneficial for children in developing nations without reliable access to fluoroscopy. This study is co-authored by Dr. Lewis Zirkel, founder and president of Sign Fracture Care.
Sign's innovative implants have revolutionized fracture care throughout the developing world, and retrograde nails in children could be another big step pending further research. That's it for the inaugural episode of the new JPO podcast. Join us next month for more highlighted articles, discussions with authors, and guest commentators. And even better, subscribe to follow this podcast so you'll get new episodes straight to your phone.